Uh, well, as Pastor Rich said, we are uh, finishing up our series in the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, as we finish up today, you'll realize that this book ends still very much in the middle of a story, in the middle of uh, King David's life. And one of the reasons for that is that originally the book was written uh, as one book, which was then later divided into two. And so as we finish today, you might feel a little annoyed, like, wait, what is going on? You know, it's almost like stopping a movie halfway through. Uh, but don't worry, we do plan on uh, teaching through Second Samuel at some point. Um, it will most likely be next summer. And uh, so stick around for that. And so what that means is that if your company tries to transfer you this next year, uh, you'll just have to say, nope, sorry, guys, I can't do it. I have to uh, stick around to find out what happens to King David. And so just kidding. You could just read the book, but we don't want you to move. So don't don't take the transfer either way. Um, anyway, if you have been with us this uh, summer, moving into the fall, uh, as we've gone through this book, you'll realize we've covered uh, quite a lot of topics. It's been uh, quite a ride. We've looked at things like prayer and leadership and obedience. Um, we talked about the importance of friendship and community and, and how important it is to avoid isolation. We talked about what it looks like to have real courage in the face of, of, of facing your giants. As well, we've, we've looked at some of the most well-known leaders in Israel's history, guys like Samuel and Saul and David. And I think one of the big things we've seen about, uh, about these men and about the characters in this book is that people are complicated. Guys like Saul, uh, we discovered that they have some shining moments. They have some uh, moments of following the Lord and, and of some success, but, but who for the most part, uh, he has remained an a unrepentant man. He's remained a man who has chosen to reject uh, God in his life. In the end, we've seen that he is a man who does not have a relationship with the Lord. And what we'll see today as we close this book is that he will remain in that state throughout his entire life. That things never really change for Saul. But when we contrast that with David, what we see with David is that he too has had some shining moments, uh, even more so than Saul. But even as we've dug into his life, we've seen that he's also had some confusing moments, some Moments of sin and, and compromise. Moments where his faith has, has perhaps faltered a little bit. But the main difference between him and Saul is that David is, a, is someone who is sensitive to God. David actually has a relationship with God and he desires to please him. And no, he is not perfect. He doesn't always do what is right. And, and that's why we need a greater David, right? But as we'll see with, with King David today, that he really is a man who relies on God, who looks to God when uh, he is in that desperate place. But before we dive into the story, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we are just so desperate to hear from you this morning. Lord, we just thank you for even just the journey that we've been on in this book. And Lord, as we close today, I just pray you would seal these things in our heart. Lord, that you, through your word and through the Holy Spirit, you would speak and that all of us would leave here different than when we came in, that we would be able to see Jesus uh, more clearly, that we'd be able to see him exalted and lifted up, and that as a result, you would actually change our hearts and our character into looking more like him. And so we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, I like to have control in my life. And, and what I mean by that is I, I like to control myself, um, my circumstances, my 
surroundings and, and even the people in my life. Unfortunately, just ask my wife and kids. And, and I don't mind letting God have control as long as he does what I would have done if I was the one in control. I don't know if anyone can relate to that. I mean, I really like control. But the thing is, is that sometimes uh, things get out of control in our lives. When, when pain and discomfort arises in my life, my temptation is to, to double down, to, to clamp down and to try to take things uh, back into my own hands. And yet the reality is, is that control is an illusion. None of us actually have control in our lives. And, and sometimes I believe that the Lord allows us uh, to, to see that reality. He brings us into difficult places in our lives in order uh, to show us just how, uh, how much of an illusion control really is. I think sometimes he allows us to reach the end of our robes so that we can stop trusting in ourselves and learn to trust in him. And yet it's difficult. It's, it's hard for many of us to let go. It's hard to trust God, to truly believe that he knows what is best, that he is for us, not against us. And what we're going to see in today's uh, passage is that David is here. He's, he's in that place, that place of, of needing to learn to trust the Lord. And so uh, as we begin to walk through this story, um, if you remember last week, Chris, uh, Pastor Chris was pretty cautious in saying um, one way or the other, if, if it was right of David to flee uh, Israel in order to find refuge with the Philistines. And, uh, you know, I really re- respect where he landed on that. And, and he is right. The narrator does not come out and tell us one way or the other. Um, but I think for, for me, as I ha- have dug into this passage, I, I think there are at least some hints and some indications that, that perhaps David at this point in his life, he was struggling to trust God. And he was beginning to take things into his own hands. And, and as many of you know, when we begin to do that, that always leads to bad things. Uh, there's this proverb I think about a lot that says, uh, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end ends in death. And, and, um, and one of the, the main reasons that I think David is perhaps struggling here is, is if you go back to uh, chapter 27, and in verse 1, it says this, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. And so here we have David, the one who has been chosen and anointed by God to be Israel's next king. The one who has been delivered over and over again by the Lord. I mean, just think about it uh, alone in the sense that he has fought dozens of battles. I mean, hand-to-hand combat where you have a sword and a a shield. And he has been through dozens of those and and has uh, escaped every time. He's had Saul pursuing him for years. And yet every time the Lord has delivered him. And yet here in chapter 27, verse one, we see him acting so defeated. He's he's being so fatalistic about his future. He's he's absolutely convinced that Saul will in the end kill him, that he will one day perish. And, you know, as many Old Testament commentators have pointed out that that in this period of David's life and this period of fleeing to to the Philistines, Uh, The Lord's name, that Yahweh's name is not mentioned uh, one time. 
And so again, while we can't be certain that that David is in a backslidden state here, I do think it's reasonable to assume that that at the very least he's struggling in his faith at this point, which honestly, I'm not being hard on him. It's actually, I think, understandable. I mean, he has been in this trial. He has been in this place of of wilderness from running from Saul for uh, most people think 10 to 15 years. And I don't know about you, but I've never been in a trial for 10 to 15 years. I think one of the worst ones I experienced was about nine months, and I thought that was going to kill me. And so, again, I'm, I'm not being hard on him, but I, I, I do think that perhaps maybe his faith is wavering here. And so, again, where we are at in the story, he is living with the Philistines. And as we saw last week, he has been pretending all along to go out and to fight against the Israelites. Even though in reality, he has actually been fighting Israel's enemies. And so he has been deceiving uh, King Achish. He's been deceiving the Philistines. But now as we come to chapter 29, we see that David has gotten himself into quite a pickle. In fact, he is facing a pretty impossible dilemma. And the thing about this dilemma is that it's one of his own making. It's, it's honestly really his fault. And so uh, let's pick up the story now in chapter 29. Um, Starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Apek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistine were passing by, by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. Okay, so in case maybe that's not clear, let me just spell out what the problem is, what the dilemma is that David has gotten himself into. The Philistines are preparing to attack Israel and David and his men are are marching out with the Philistine army. And we're told that they're in the back with King Achish. And and as far as King Achish knows, um, this is no problem for David. I mean, after all, he's been fighting the Israelites for uh, he's been claiming to go out and to fight them. And so uh, this should not be a big deal. But the problem is, is that, as we saw last week, David has been lying. He actually never has been uh, going out and fighting the Israelites, but rather he's been fighting some of Israel's old enemies. And so David is in a pretty tight spot here. If he goes out and he fights with the Israelites, uh, the very people he is supposed to be reigning over, uh, it seems very unlikely that he would then uh, be qualified to be their king one day. He would be officially at that point a traitor. And yet if he refuses to fight with uh, the Philistines, uh, King Achish will then know that David has been lying to him. And at that point, he will then have to face the Philistines. And so what is he going to do? What even can he do? It, It seems like it's a hopeless situation, like there's no way out for him. Well, let's keep reading. Verse three. The commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, least in the battle... He become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? And so here's what just happened. 
David and his men are marching out with King Achish and with the Philistine army. And, and as uh, they're going about, they're ready to fight uh, Israel. And then all of a sudden, the Philistine commanders notice uh, this group of Hebrews. And they're like, wait, 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 what, what's going on here? There's no way we are going into battle with these men. And yet King Achish, he's, he's like, well, why not? I mean, this is David. He's been with me now for years and, and I found nothing wrong with him. And so wh- why not? But the commanders are like, no way, we're not having it. In fact, they begin to get angry and they're like, you better just send this guy back home because we are not going into battle with him. Because they're like, look, there, there's no way that uh, if this guy wanted to reconcile himself back to uh, his uh, King Saul, that all he would have to do is to cut off our heads and to deliver them to Saul and Saul would welcome him back in. And so, again, they're they're not having it. And so in verse six, we see that Achish breaks the news to David. Um, he even swears by Yahweh's name, which is interesting because it's the first time that that the Lord's name is mentioned here since David has fled to the Philistines, and yet it's being used by a pagan king who presumably doesn't believe in Yahweh. And so it's, it's this king, not David. And so again, I, I think that that hints that maybe David is struggling with his faith here. And so King Achish is like, look, David, I swear by Yahweh that you have been honest with me and that if it was up to me, you would go uh, out and fight with us. But my commanders, they just aren't having it. And so look, David, you you better just head back home. And so in verse eight, we see David respond. He says, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? And Achish answered David and he said, I know you are as blameless in my sight as the angel of God. This is getting really dramatic here. I mean, you are as blameless in the sight as an angel of God, David. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go with us into battle. And so this is really unbelievable. David was just in the middle of an extremely difficult dilemma. And yet, even though the Lord's not mentioned here, there is no doubt that God in his providence and in his goodness has just delivered David from the situation. And he's done it by the hands of his enemies. He's done it by the hands of the Philistine commanders. And I really like what one commentator said about this. He said, the manner in which David is disencumbered from this trap leaves us breathless. We marvel at the providential care, but also at the ironic, almost humorous way David comes out smelling like a rose. In a single turn, his predicament, which seemed to have no solution, becomes an opportunity to avoid conflict with either Saul or the Philistines. And I think that this really illustrates that proverb, Proverbs 21, 1, which says, The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. In this case, it's not a king, but rather some pagan commanders. And the Lord is just totally using them. He's guiding their hearts in order to get David out of this difficult dilemma. And the thing that's so crazy here, I I think about this passage, is that we, in the end, have no idea what David is thinking. I mean, is he really planning on fighting uh, the Israelites? Or is he just, you know, protesting to, to make it seem like he really is upset, like, 
oh darn, I don't get to go fight the Israelites, you know? And is he just playing it up when in reality he's actually uh, relieved? Well, we don't really know. Uh, it is interesting that uh, in verse 8 he says, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king. On the surface there, uh, he appears to be talking about King Achish. And Achish certainly takes it that way. But, but earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, in fact, three different times, David uses those very words, my Lord, the king, when referring to Saul. And so is he just being clever here? Was his intentions all along to actually, in the midst of the battle, turn and attack the Philistines? Well, again, we don't know, but either way, the Lord has rescued him and has taken the decision out of his hands. And I think that's one of the beautiful themes that we really see throughout this book, and in particular, these last three chapters, and that is the Lord's sovereignty and his providence and his protection over the lives of his people. He has been protecting and guiding David uh, all along, and we'll talk more about that at the end of the message. But here in this chapter, we see that God has been quietly in the background through his sovereignty and his providence, delivering and protecting David. And there's no doubt that we each of us have moments in our lives like that where perhaps our faith is wavering. Perhaps we are in that place of feeling distant from the Lord. And maybe we're wondering, where is he? Why isn't he working in my life? And yet maybe some time passes and we look back and we just say, He was there all along and we just see his his providential care and his sovereignty in our lives. You know, earlier this week, I was um, wanting to just spend some time with the Lord in prayer. And and I was trying to find a quiet place here at the church. And so I went back to our library and as I was just praying and and asking the Lord to to help me with this message, I I looked up on the wall and I noticed uh, that old poem, Footprints. And uh, for those of you who know it, it's, you know, it's been around a long time and and I was just again reminded of, of those seasons when, when life's maybe most difficult and we feel like, where are you, Lord? It's there in those moments that he's in the background, but he's not really in the background. He's actually carrying us. And, and that's what we see him doing here with David. And so the story continues. David and his men, they're, they're sent back home. They head back to the, the area of the Philistines where they were living called Ziglag. And picking it up in chapter 30, verse 1, we read this. Now, when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziglag. They had overcome Ziglag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but they carried them off and they went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken, Anahom of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And so, wow, things just went from bad to worse for David. He has just been rejected by the Philistines and sent back home. And yet when him and his men get there, they see that their homes have been burned and that their wives and their children have been captured. And we're told upon realizing this, that David and his men uh, who are with him, that they raise their voices and they weep until they have no more strength. And I just want you to try to imagine this. You know, it's so easy just to, to read the scriptures and not really try to enter into what's going on there. 
I mean, I have a, a wife and four uh, small children, and I, I just can't imagine coming home from work one day to find my house burned and my family gone. And as I was just thinking about this scene, it reminded me of that horrible scene in the movie Gladiator where Russell Crowe comes home and finds his house burned and, and his wife and his family killed. And, and if you remember that scene, it's just so painful to watch. And, and that's what these men are facing here. And so this is really bad. But things are actually going to even get worse for David. Look at verse 6, the first part of it. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. And so not only is David dealing with the, the pain of losing his own family, but he's actually now having his own men wanting to kill him. Because apparently in their minds, he is somehow responsible for this. And I guess in a lot of ways he is. It was his decision and he's the reason why they were living in this land of Ziglag in the first place. And so this is not good. I think David here is at one of the lowest points in his life. He surely is at the end of his rope. And so what does he do? Well, let's look at the end of verse 6. But David strengthened himself and the Lord, his God. You see, earlier in the book, in chapter 23, we saw that David was, was yet again in a, a low point, in a crisis. But that, at that time, in chapter 23, his, his best friend Jonathan came and strengthened him. And we're told that he strengthened David's hand in God, and yet right now, Jonathan is not around. And not only is Jonathan not around, but his own men have turned against him, and so... What does he do? We're told there that David strengthened himself and the Lord, his God. You see, in this series, we talked about how vital and how important friendship and community are. And that's, that's absolutely right. We need those things. But you and I, we cannot ride on the coattails of other people's faith. As Chris pointed out last week, we saw Saul do that throughout his entire life. He he rode on the coattails of Samuel's faith, but we cannot do that. No, you and I, we must learn how to go to God for ourselves, how to find strength in him. And to do that, we have to have a relationship with him. Notice what it says there. It says the Lord, his God. Yahweh was David's God. He had a personal relationship with him. And even if David's faith was faltering when he fled to the Philistines, when push came to shove, he turned to the Lord for strength and encouragement. David strengthened himself in the Lord. Not only did he strengthen himself in the Lord, but, but uh, look at verse 7. He also reaches out for help and for guidance. It says this. And David said to Abathar, the priest, the son of Elimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David and David inquired of the Lord. Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall rescue. So David strengthens himself in the Lord, and then he uses the prescribed method for inquiring of the Lord. And so he goes and gets the priest, Abathar, who at this point is the last remaining priest, because if you remember earlier in the book, Saul killed about 70 of them. And so he goes and he gets the priest and he asks the priest to bring the ephod and he begins to inquire. He begins to cry out to the Lord for help. And the Lord gives him uh, guidance. He tells them to go and to pursue 
the people who raided them. And he promises that, that they will overtake them, that they will rescue their families. And so before we move on the story, story, let me just pause and ask you, where do you turn when your life is in crisis? Where do you go when you reach the end of your rope, when things uh, begin to spin out of control? Do you turn to the Lord, your God? Do you look to him for strength and encouragement and guidance? Or do you instead, if you're like me, if you're a control freak, do you do you try to double down? Do you do you clamp down and try to regain, quote unquote, control of things? Or maybe for some of you, if you're a little more extroverted, maybe you just always when when your life hits crisis, you just automatically turn to other people. You look to others to rescue you, to comfort you. You see, this is such a crucial issue because the reality is, is that you and I are going to face moments like this in our lives. Maybe our houses won't be burned down and our families kidnapped, but we will get those dreaded phone calls. At some point in our lives, we might get those bad diagnoses from the doctor. We will have moments in our lives when we realize we are not in control. We will realize that we cannot save ourselves. And when those moments come, what will you do and where will you turn Will you, like David, turn to the Lord and strengthen yourself in him and and look to him for guidance? Or will you turn to something else? You know, I remember a few years ago, my wife and I, we were um, in the middle of a very painful situation with uh, some friends of ours. And without really getting into the details, uh, what was going on is that Faith and I felt like we were being treated unjustly. And from our perspective, we were just trying to, to help our friends who themselves were struggling And yet somehow in the midst of that, things turned around and we somehow became the bad guys. And in the process of that, there were some false accusations made against us. Uh, Our motives and our actions were were, uh, mischaracterized. They were misjudged. And I think one of the hardest things in that season was our inability to really control the situation. Our inability to, to feel like we could defend ourselves and to defend our reputations. If you've ever been in that place where maybe your reputation is attacked and, and people are talking about you, that, that feeling of not having control of what people are saying is, is really hard. And it was particularly hard on my wife. And there was just this one day where she was pouring out her soul to the Lord. And this, this season really pushed her into the Lord like nothing before in her life. I mean, she, you know, we have a, a little Cape Cod house and it was built in the 40s, so we don't have walk-in closets. We literally have a door and then like a bar and that's it. But she would pull the things out of there and she would crawl in and just begin to cry out to the Lord. And this one day she was just pouring out her soul to the Lord and she was just like, God, this, this seems so unfair. I mean, why are we being treated like this? I mean, who can just stand there and take false accusations without defending themselves? I mean, who can just stand there and be slandered and misjudged and mischaracterized? I mean, who can just take that and not defend themselves? And in that moment, she heard a voice inside say, that's what I did. And it was like in that moment, instantly something broke. The spirit helped her realize that that's exactly what happened to Jesus before he was crucified. While he was on trial, we're told there that he did not open his mouth to defend himself. And when the spirit spoke that it didn't solve the situation, it didn't take it away. But what it did do is it gave her the strength 
It gave her the encouragement and the courage to actually face it. And so, again, it's just so crucial that you and I learn how to do this, that we know how to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And that's what David does here. And so let's go on with the story and find out, find out what happens. So David strengthens himself in the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. The Lord tells him to go after these men to, to begin to head out. And apparently they head out and they're going so hard that, that they come to this brook called Bezor. And, and in that, uh, they're about to cross and 200 of the 600 men uh, just say, we can't go on. Which again, if you think about that, that's crazy. I mean, these are extremely motivated men. I mean, their wives and their children are missing too. And yet they just physically are exhausted. They, they can't go on. And so David and the remaining 400, they cross the brook and they begin to head back out. But wait, there's a problem. The problem is, is that they don't even know, number one, who captured their families and where these people are at. And so what, let's find out what happens. Look at verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We have just made a raid against the Negev of the Chesarites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziglag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said to me, swear to God that you will not uh, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. Wow, what a coincidence. I mean... How neat is that? David and his men run into the one person who could take them to their families. He's the one person who knows where these men are at. I mean, what are the odds of that? How lucky have they just been? Just kidding. But I I, I just love what God does here. I mean, the Lord could have, when David inquired of him, said, uh, yeah, go pursue after these men. And by the way, it's the Amalekites and this is where they're at. But instead, he doesn't do that. He just says, David, go and pursue them. You will definitely overtake them. But isn't that oftentimes how God works? He doesn't tell us everything at once, but instead, he gives us just enough information to step out in faith. Just enough information to begin to to pursue and to trust that he will come through for us. That he will give us the next piece of information, the next step when we need it. And so David is walking by faith here. He has a command by the Lord and he has a promise that they will succeed, but that's all that he has. But it's enough to begin to step out in faith. And as he does, the Lord comes through. The Lord provides an Egyptian man just at the right time. And so let's keep going. Verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted uh, on camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. 
Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds that the people and, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. So the Egyptian man leads them right to the Amalekites, which is fascinating since these are the very people that Saul was supposed to wipe out and didn't earlier in the book. And that's the very reason why the Lord had rejected him and, and rejected his kingship. And yet here we have God and his divine providence use them to raid David only to have David in turn attack them and defeat them. And one thing I, I, I picked up from my friend John Hopler, who taught on this back at our pastor's conference this summer, uh, he, he talked about this in verse 17, where it says, not a man escaped except 400 young men on camels. 400. That's a lot of men. I mean, David only had 400 himself. You would expect that sentence to say something like this. And not a man escaped except three or four men on camels. And yet it doesn't. It says 400. And so think about that. For the narrator to, to say it like that, this had to be a huge army of Amalekites that they defeated. I mean, uh, the, the NASB says that David slaughtered them. You don't say he slaughtered them if it was like 405 guys and 400 got away, right? I mean, this must have been thousands of men. But not only that, look at what verse 18 says. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And not only did he get back what was lost, but he also plundered them and took spoil from them that they had taken from the Philistines. And so David and his men, they, they begin to, they rescue their families and their children, and they begin to head back to the 200 men who are back at the brook of Bezer, the ones who were too tired. And, and as I was thinking about this story, I just had this thought, like, can you imagine if you're like one of the wives or like one of the kids and like, you know, in the chaos, there's all this battle and then all of a sudden the dust settles and you realize you've been rescued and you're like kind of looking around for your husband and you're like, where's Bill at? And they're like, oh, you know, well, you know, Bill, he got a cramp in his side and and he just couldn't come and, and fight. And so we left him back, you know, a couple miles back. But, you know, don't worry, he's probably safe. And you're, you're, you're it's your dad. And you're like, come on, dad, like you got to lay off the pizza. You got to start doing some crunches. I mean, let's go. I mean, next time, you know, we might not be so lucky, Dad. And so, anyway, I thought that was funny. But, um, so David and his men, they get back to these 400. And when they get back, the, or back to the 200, and when they get back, the 400 are irritated with these men who didn't go. And they basically say, let's just give them back their wives and their kids. And then let, let's, let's be done with them. Let's not give them any of the spoil. And yet, look how David responds in verse 23. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and he's given into our hands the band that came against us. Who would listen to you on this matter? For as his share is with the one who goes down into battle, so shall his share be with the one who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. And so first off, the thing to notice is that David actually gives the Lord the proper credit. For the victory. But not only that, he now is showing grace and generosity towards those who were weaker. And so after that, the chapter ends with David sending some spoil to some different uh, cities in Judah. And so at that point, he's beginning to endear himself to the very people he will one day reign over. And so that's how the chapter ends. And so now the scene switches back over to Saul and back to this battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. And so let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 31. 
Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain uh, on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and some other guy, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword, and he fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword, and he died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were with him on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. So we see that God's word through Samuel is fulfilled. The Israelites indeed defeat Israel, and Saul's three sons are killed in battle. Saul himself gets wounded and decided, decides that he will kill himself. And one commentator talking about this uh, said this, Saul's suicide is symbolic. The Philistines did not remove him from his throne. David did not remove him from his throne, for he refused to do so. Saul did it himself. He fashioned his own downfall through his faithlessness and his disobedience. This then was confirmed by his suicide. So Saul's sad and sorry reign finally comes to an end. His life has read like a tragedy, a a lesson in, in what not to do. And so in closing, what can we take away from these final three chapters? Well, if you remember back to week one in this series, we looked at a woman named Hannah, a, a woman who was desperate to have a child. And, and, and when the Lord finally blessed her with a child, she writes this song, this, this prayer of, of praise. And, and if you remember back to that message, one of the things I said is that if you look closely at this song, you'll see it play out through the rest of the book. And really the theme of her prayer, the theme of her song is God's amazing providence and his amazing sovereignty in our lives. And so if we go back to that prayer in verse 9 of chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, it says this. And speaking of the Lord. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. You see, all through chapters 29 and 30, we have seen how the Lord has guarded and has protected and guided his faithful one, David. How he has given him strength. How he has exalted him. And conversely, in chapter 31, we've seen how a faithless and a wicked Saul has been cut off. When Saul called out to Samuel, when he raised him up, uh, you know, last week when we looked at that crazy chapter where he uses the medium to call up Samuel from the dead. One of the things that Samuel says to him is that now, Saul, you have become the Lord's enemy. And here we see in Hannah's words come true, the adversaries or the enemies of the Lord are broken to pieces. You see, God's sovereignty, this is kind of the big idea that I saw here, is that God's sovereignty and his providence in the lives of those who love him, it should act like a warm blanket to our souls. But for those who, uh, who have turned their backs on God, 
To those who have rejected him, God's sovereignty and his providence is a terrifying thing. And so I just want to beg you, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, if you have not yet entered into relationship with him, then I just beg you to learn from the life of Saul. To learn that, that knowing about God, to uh, knowing religious language, riding on the coattails of other people's faith, that it is not enough. You must have a personal and an intimate walk and relationship with him. And so again, if, if you just simply acknowledge, I'm in that place, but I don't want to be. I want to, to have a relationship with him. You can do that today. You can turn to the Lord. But if you're here today and you do not, if you're here today and you do know him, I hope that what you'll see through David's life in these last few chapters of the book is this, that even when you and I are faithless, he remains faithful. Even when we can't see him, when we doubt that he's active in our lives, he is there and he is working. When disaster strikes, when we reach the end of our robes, when when the control that we thought we had in our lives is revealed to be an illusion, that in those moments we must remember that he is in control. He guards the feet of his faithful ones, just like Hannah said. And when we, like David, when we turn to him, we will find strength and encouragement and guidance. The Lord will meet us in our difficulties. In fact, I believe he will not only meet us there, but he will use them to draw us in closer. You know, on my computer here at the office, I have uh, like some screensavers rolling or whatever. And it's mainly like pictures of my wife and kids. But I have a few quotes. And one of the quotes that I have rolling that I think captures uh, this, uh, the irony of trials and sufferings. It's by a guy named Charles Spurgeon. And it says this. I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. And I know that sounds crazy, but if you have experienced it, if you have been walking through uh, trials and suffering and you go to the Lord, you will understand what Spurgeon is saying there. And so I just want to say to this today, if you're here today and you're struggling if you're in the midst of a trial, if you're in the midst of suffering, if, if life isn't quite turning out like you had hoped, I just want you to know that no suffering is wasted on the Lord. That no trial uh, is ever useless to Him. In fact, if you turn to Him, again, I believe that He will draw you in close and He will use it to show you His goodness. To show you, as Nick said today, that He is our loving, caring Father. And that everything that comes into our lives has been filtered through his loving hands. Uh, band, you can go ahead and come on up. You know, as we turn our attention now to the Lord's table, I just want to point out one last thing here from today's message. You know, we've been saying all throughout this series that Jesus is the greater David, that Jesus is the anointed one, the true king of Israel. And what I want you to see this morning is just like how David recovered all from his enemies. The Lord Jesus will and has recovered all from his enemies. The Lord Jesus will right all the wrongs in our lives. He will redeem and restore what sin and death has taken from us. Jesus will recover all. You see, the reality is, is that if you and I would would write ourselves in today's story, do you want to know who we're like? We're like those 200 men who are too tired to go on. We're the ones who couldn't fight the battle, who couldn't go and recover what was taken from us. 
And this is, this is crazy, but many believe the word Bezer there, the brook of Bezer means good news. And when we were stuck at the brook that we couldn't cross, King Jesus came. And he, and he won the battle that we couldn't face. And not only did he win it, but he shares his spoils with us. He shares the victory with us. And so today, as we come to the Lord's table, I just want us to remember that. I want us to rejoice in what he has done for us. And so in a moment, the ushers are going to come down and they're going to release you by row. And you can come up and take the bread and the cup. And you can just take them back to your seat. And, and as we continue to sing and to worship, whenever you feel led or ready to take it, you can go ahead and take them on your own. But before we do, let me close us in prayer. Father, you are so good to us. Lord, even in those moments when maybe we've, our faith has begun to waver, Lord, we maybe have fled to the land of the Philistines, Lord. Even in those moments, Lord, you, your loving hand will guide us. Lord, your loving hand rescues us from those difficult dilemmas that we get ourselves into. Lord, thank you that in those moments of crisis, those moments of desperation, that when we turn to you, Lord, you will provide us with strength and encouragement to face them. And so, Lord, I just pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that, that if anyone's walking through something difficult right now, Lord, that they, that by your grace and by your Holy Spirit, you would help them to turn to you. Lord, you would help them to find that strength and encouragement to go on. Lord, for ones here who maybe have not yet made that decision, have not yet turned to you uh, and, and, and looked to you for salvation, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that, God, that they would by faith put their trust and their hope in you and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And, Lord, now as we come and take the bread and the cup, Lord, we uh, just rejoice in, in what you have done, the victory you've won, and the, the spoils that you share with us. And so... Uh, Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. We love you so much. Amen.